0: Where we are to focus on him, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a little-known, never-spoken chapter in the Bible. If you don't know where it is, just look over at the person next to you. we are going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. In his best-selling book, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer tells the story of the ill-fated expedition to the summit of Mount Everest in 1996. He mentions a member of that expedition named Yasuko Namba. Namba was a 46-year-old Japanese FedEx employee whose passion was climbing. She was an accomplished climber, having reached the summit's of seven other mountains across the world. And she desperately wanted to get to the summit of Everest. That was her goal. So much so that Krakauer writes, as a member of the expedition, Yusaku was totally focused on the top, It was almost as if she was in a trance, he writes. She pushed extremely hard, jostling her way past everyone to the front of the line. She wanted to get to the top of Everest. Later that day, she made it. She accomplished her goal. She was the oldest person ever to make it to the top of the world. Later that afternoon... As Yosaku and a number of other climbers were descending, they were caught, as you know, in a terrible blizzard. As the winds blew, Yasuko succumbed to exhaustion from her climb and froze to death. Namba died agonizingly close in time and location to where she had gained the greatest prize. And this partially helps explain her mistake. According to Krakauer, Yasuko's fatal flaw was that she adopted the wrong goal for her climb. Yasuko's goal had been to get to the top of the mountain. But as every climber knows, that is the wrong goal. You see, the goal of climbing should never be to get to the top of the summit, Successful climbers know that the goal is to return back down. The tragedy is that Yasuko accomplished her goal but gained nothing for she never returned to the bottom. Yasuko failed because she adopted the wrong goal for her climb. The Corinthians, and sometimes we too, can adopt the wrong goal for our gifts. The Corinthians wanted to use their gifts to be noticed, to gain attention, to gain status in the Bible, in the body, to gain position, influence, power. They wanted their gift to serve them. They adopted the wrong goal. The gifts that you and I and they had are to serve others. And like Yasuko, Paul says, if we adopt the wrong goal for our gifts, our end can just be as tragic as hers. Look with me at the first three verses of chapter 13. Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I can fathom, have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body To the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Although this is used in many romantic settings, such as weddings and love letters, it's actually quite a misapplication of this text. They're not meant to woo, these words. These words are not meant to teach. These words that Paul is writing in chapter 13 are meant to convict. These verses are meant to admonish the Corinthian believers in their misuse and abuse of what God had given them. See, the Corinthian church, as we've already studied, is greatly divided on many fronts. And front and center of that division is where gifts are concerned. Some thought themselves more important because of what they were doing in the body. Some had used their gifts to draw attention to themselves. Some were using their gifts to gain power and position and influence and status in the body. In essence, they'd adopted the wrong goal for their gifts. Self. So Paul pens a pretty harsh corrective in these verses. He says that in all your giftedness could add up to absolutely nothing, a big fat zero. And that's what Paul is saying in these first three verses. And his corrective is that love needs to be the goal for using our gifts. Love needs to dominate your motivation. Love, love's dominance is what he is imploring the Corinthians to use their gifts for. What Paul is doing here is actually constructing a kind of a superlative ladder, if you will, to make a point, which is if love is not the underlying motivation for what you're doing, it's noise. If you're using your gifts out of any motivation other than love, you gain nothing. To make this point, he uses the gifts that that are most important, most cherished in the Corinthian church. He starts out with tongues. This was the most divisive gift. We'll deal with it in more detail next week. And Paul says that even if you have that gift and you're not using it with the motivation of love, you're an annoying noise. Some believe that Paul is referencing angelic, uh, angelic languages here, men and of angels. I, I tend to interpret that as he's, he's using hyperbole here. He's going beyond. You're you, you speaking in tongues, known tongues. What, what, even if you spoke in an angelic tongue, even if, if your tongue was, was that amazing, even if you're, if you're doing that without love, you're a noise. Next, Paul moves on to the gifts of knowledge and of prophecy and of faith in verse 2. He says, even if you had these formidable gifts, I mean, think about that prophecy and knowledge and faith. If you had these gifts and are using it to gain status and attention and using it to crush others, it adds up to nothing. Gifts mixed with pride gains you nothing. And we all know what that looks like, don't we? I mean, just think of somebody who has a lot of knowledge but uses that knowledge In a way to humiliate others. To make others look bad. Do we all know people like this? A person who lacks kindness and humility and gentleness. They talk over people. They don't listen to people when they're talking to them. They belittle people with lesser knowledge. Their correction is harsh. They ignore and dismiss and disdain others because they have this knowledge. It's pretty unattractive, isn't it, that picture? That's what makes people like R.C. Sproul and Al Mohler and Tim Keller, that knowledge mixed with humility, that's what makes them so attractive. We're drawn to them. Because they have, they don't have that pride of knowledge. They have this sweet humility and love. Lastly, Paul moves on to the sacrificial gifts. The gifts of doing in verse 3. Generosity. If I possess, if I give all I possess to the poor, he says. What could be more generous than that? What could be more loving than that? I mean, come on, if you, if you give sacrificially, we're always talking around here about sacrificial giving, right? If you give sacrificially, that has to be in love, right? Well, nowhere is our heart more Jeremiah 17.9-ish than with money. Nowhere is it more deceitful. There's a lot of bad motivations for giving. For stature in the church. For influence. You know, I'm giving, but with strings. For admiration of the church. Look at how much I've given. That, that was Ananias and Sapphira, right? Even to the point of you can give and think you're earning clout with God. I know I've mentioned this documentary before, but I watched it and it's so applicable, the, the documentary, the docudrama actually, The Men Who Made America. And it it tells about how these five men at the turn of the 20th century were so integral in, in building America and they built amazing fortunes, the fortunes of Rockefeller and Vanderbilt and Morgan, Carnegie and Ford. And, and they were all intertwined at that time. And they were all competing to see who could make the most money. That's what that showed me. I didn't know their lives were so intertwined. But that is very interesting. When they retired, they continued to compete. Do you know how they competed? Who could give the most money away? Who could give the most land away? Who could have the most libraries and, and, uh, museums and train stations named after them. Now, I don't claim to know their hearts. But if it was done because of their legacy, because of their name, because of how they wanted to be remembered, how they wanted to be remembered, Paul would say it gains them nothing. Empty. That's the same in the body with money We all have to be vigilant over why you gave what you just gave. That's why I had the reason put back up here. Because of Christ. Because he looks at me and sees Christ. And he put my punishment on his own son. Paul goes on to say that you can even give the ultimate sacrifice. Offer your body to the flames, he says. You can give your life, but if it's not out of the motivation of love, even that sacrifice can gain you nothing. Isn't that amazing? You can give your life in 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 a selfish way. And that, perhaps is what puts Christ's sacrifice in such great relief, doesn't it? Christ gave his life. And it had nothing to do with gaining anything. Do you realize that? You and I, we do things, we have voids in our life that marriage and friendship and parents and children fill. Christ had no void in his life. He needed nothing. He had perfect relationship already. He was perfectly fulfilled already in the Trinity. He wasn't coming to earth to gain anything. He had nothing to gain. He did it selflessly. His motivation for stepping into our shoes of temptation and thirst and hunger and aches and pains and relational hurts. Could you imagine how deeply it hurt him when he saw Judas Iscariot dip that bread in the bowl with him? His motivation was love. His motivation for walking up the hill of Golgotha, knowing what he was going to, knowing that he was going to be nailed to the cross to suffer excruciating pain, excruciating pain, and dying a horrible and shameful death for you and me was nothing but love. He wasn't gaining anything in this. There was no transaction coming this way towards him. And yet, it gained him nothing, it gained us everything. Forgiveness for our sins. Reconciliation with the Father in heaven. We can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Identity. Son of the living God, daughter, princess. And Christ did it all with a single motivation of love what Paul is saying here in chapter 13 is we should have that same motivation towards each other. Love. Nothing coming back. All going out. And that's the scary corrective of these words, As if we're not, Paul's words get pretty explicit here. If whatever you're doing for God is not done with the motivation of love, it's nothing. Gains you nothing. It's a noise. A big fat zero. David Jackman in his commentary says, The point is that the spiritual life of an individual or a congregation is measured not by gifts or busy activity, not by size or impact, not by commitment or sound doctrine or keen to experience God's power, but by love. Like the Corinthians, we find this very hard to accept, he says. The lesson we have to learn is that the existence and the use of spiritual gifts are not in themselves a mark of genuine spirituality. It is only the controlling presence and motivation of love. I think that is part of what's going on In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, that scary section of Scripture, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, think about Corinth. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you away from me now this is in the context of false teachers and i think that jesus's point here in matthew is that the false teachers were using their gifts for selfish motivation not out of love it was to get something look what i did and that's what the corinthians were doing look at what i can do look at what i'm doing And as we grow here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, we have to realize that our motivation for serving, for teaching, for giving, for visiting, for discipling, for encouraging, must be more and more, more and more, because we love the other person. The reason for all we do needs to be because I love you. Why are you doing this? Because I love you. Why are you here? Because I love you. Why are you teaching me? Because I love you. Why did you write that note? Because I love you. If love is not the motivation, then Paul describes the best case scenario in chapter three of this letter. He says, your work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. Do you know what the best case scenario is for you as a believer if you are doing things without the motivation of love? The best case scenario is that all your works are burned up, but you enter in. That's the best case scenario the worst case scenario is that he says, I didn't know who you were. Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church is famous for saying, if you claim to love Christ, the head, but do not love his body, the church, I just don't know what you're talking about. I I just don't know what you're talking about, he says. And I think that's true. You can claim to love Christ. Oh, I love you, Christ. But you know what? I can take or leave the body of Christ. There's no biblical category for that. So I can tell you that is a hard pill to swallow. And when I was preparing in the back room this week, I said, my my follow-on question to the first three verses is, oh my, if that's true, what is love? Please tell me what love is. And Paul anticipates that question. And that's what the next four verses are all about. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Here we have a laundry list describing what love looks like. And it was certainly meant intentionally, these words, these descriptors to really bring conviction to the hearts of the Corinthians who were not acting like this towards each other. He was saying, Corinthians, love is patient. You know what? You don't roll your eyes at fellow believers, even when they say something that might not be correct or ill-timed, or they say the same things over and over again. You never roll your eyes at a person in the body of Christ. Corinthians, love is kind. Corinthians, your schedule's not your own. Do you take special care of those people in the body who are weaker? Do you take time, Corinthians, to drop off notes or stop by for a cup of tea? Perhaps even when it's most inconvenient for you. God's people, love does not envy. Even when a person in the body has greater success than you, greater advancement than you, greater giftedness than you. Let me just lay it out on the line here for everybody. Not everybody's gifted equally. Some people are uber gifted and some people have one gift. That's okay. Love does not say, why is that person teaching instead of me? Why does that person have that position instead of me? Why wasn't I asked? Love never gossips about another person in the body of Jesus Christ. People of God, love does not boast. you know what the word boast there means in, in Greek? Windbag. In other words, people don't. You shouldn't go on and on and on and on and on about what you have and and the things you have and where you traveled and what you did. You know what love says? Love looks at the other person and says, tell me about you. I want to know about you. Where have you gone? What have you done? Where did you work? People of God... Love is not proud. Jonathan Edwards, in his little booklet, Undetected Pride, notes seven sneaky symptoms of pride. Listen to them. Fault finding, harshness, superficiality, defensiveness, a presumptiveness towards God, hunger for attention, and neglect of others. Love doesn't look like that. People of God, love is not rude. Even when people are really rude to you. People of God, love is not self-seeking. Kim Riddleberger writes, Without love, you will use your gifts selfishly and selectively. I love that second word. You'll use your gifts selectively with this person and not with that person. With that person, but not with that person. Love uses gifts indiscriminately. People of God, love is not easily angered. Do you know why love is not easily angered? Because when somebody sins against you and, and you're tempted to get out of control angry, You know what a person that's filled with the Spirit of Christ, you know what goes through their mind? I'm just like that. That's who I am inside. tends to put a big douse of water on your anger. SWHCC, love keeps no records of wrongs. In other words, you don't treat the person the way their history demands that they're treated. Well, this person always is, is, is hurtful once you get close to them. I'm not going to get close to them because I know their history. That's not what love does. Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, love does not delight in evil. Love never says, never says, they got their just desserts. They got what they deserved. They had it coming. SWHCC, love never, love rejoices in truth. Love rejoices in truth. Proverbs 26, 7 says, The wounds of a friend are trusted. The wounds of a friend are trusted. Love tells another the truth even when it's hard. You know what love does? Love accepts truth, even though it's hard to hear. SWHCC, love always protects another person. You know what love does? When somebody starts talking about another person in the body, they say, you know, let's change the subject. Let's not go there. Let's not talk about that person. SWHCC, love always trusts Because of the gospel, trust is something given, not earned. I'm going to say that again. Because of the gospel, trust is something given, not earned. I hear so many times, they haven't earned my trust. Boy, where would we be if Christ said that about us? SWHCC, love always hopes. I did a funeral on Friday and that always recalibrates me about how short life is. It always recalibrates me. Death brings a sobriety to life's circumstances because it is so so final. And hope is the ability to keep life's circumstances in eternal perspective. SWCC, love always perseveres. You know why? Because love is the only thing that lasts. Love's the only thing that lasts. It's the only thing that continues from this life into the next. And that's Paul's final point in the final verses of the chapter. He even starts out, Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Now we see but in a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall be known fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul here is describing love's endurance. Why is love the greatest of these? Why is love, does he end it with saying, love's the greatest? Because love is the only thing that lasts beyond the grave. Paul really wants to put these three chapters in relief when he says in verse 10, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will disappear. He's speaking about Christ's second coming, the consummation, when the kingdom of God will once again be here. And that knowledge changes our thinking. When you realize that the kingdom of God is going to come back and change everything, it changes the way you think. It changes your perspective. Paul says here, that all the gifts that you Corinthians think are so important, prophecy and tongues and knowledge, that you treasure so highly, they're at best imperfect. They will not be needed. They'll be absent. They'll cease to be when God's kingdom comes. So he's he's saying implying to them why are you putting so much emphasis on this when those things are going to be gone anyway that's what Christ's second coming does to us too it radically changes our perspective on what's really of value doesn't it you know we we guard our reputations so so hard we we guard them we put layers around what's our reputation our position, our intelligence, our perspective on what we have, on how we dress, on our appearance, on if we're handsome or beautiful or not. That doesn't matter. It's all going away. Why put such emphasis on them? It also changes the kingdom of God coming, changes your childishness, or at least it should. Verse 11 We read it and we think, oh, how sweet. Oh, my goodness. This must have hit the Corinthians right between the eyes. You know what Paul's saying? Grow up. Grow up, Corinthians. You're childish. This is child's play, what you're doing. Children are preoccupied with themselves. The world revolves around them. And part of maturity is being this way not navel-gazing, as my mom used to say. Be out here towards people. She brought me up with sayings, and I think I've said this one before. She said, when I was 20, I worried what the world thought about me. When I was 30, I wondered what the world thought about me. When I became 40, I realized the world wasn't thinking about me at all. (laughs) Lastly, knowing that all this is temporary should focus us on what is permanent. Paul says that the only quality that is permanent that bridges the barrier between life and death is love. That's why it's the greatest. Faith no longer needed. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, Paul says, hey listen, you're going to see face to face. You're not going to need faith anymore. Faith will no longer be needed in heaven. Hope, no longer needed. What is hope? Hope is looking forward to something. When you're in God's kingdom, you have nothing more to look forward to. Hope is gone. You've got it all. No, love is the only thing that endures into eternity. Expressing that love through using those gifts that you have been given by God to love other people in this church. This is the gold, silver, and precious stones of 1 Corinthians 3. Those acts done towards others out of simple, selfless love. Pastor Stephen Um of Boston put it poignantly when he writes, Some of the most beautiful stories of love are those in which there is a preview of the permanence of love. Consider, for example, cases in which a wife or a husband make the excruciating decision to care for a spouse who has ceased to be the engaging partner and friend they once were. I think of my grandmother who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and spent the last few years of her life stuck somewhere between the present and the past. She no longer recognized her husband And even called him by the name of an old boyfriend of hers. This causes us to ask the tough questions of love. Will you still invest in me when I have nothing to give back? Will you love me when it's not a game anymore? When I can't play catch? Are there limitations and conditions on your love? Was this love really about a transaction and what I could do for you? Do you want to get to the nub of what love really looks like? There it is. A selfless love. Using your gifts towards each other, expecting nothing in return. That kind of love is the currency of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, trust that you will apply it to our hearts and minds appropriately and perfectly. In Jesus' name, amen.